Our guest in this session is a fantastic Irish writer whose range covers such a, a broad gamut. His latest... No, we haven't started the talk, so that's okay. His latest book is a, a brilliant dark comedy set in the world of publishing about a, a, a writer who simply can't come up with an idea for a novel, so steals other people's. A ladder to the sky. Please welcome to the stage John Boyne. Thank you. Thank you. Before we talk about uh, A Ladder to the Sky, let's, let's just talk about more general things relating to, to you. And um, Ad Haranan started uh, his talk about uh, endurance running earlier on this morning with breaking news. Thank you very much. Uh, the news that, uh, that the two-hour uh, speed limit had been broken in a marathon. Someone had completed it in one hour, 56 minutes. We have breaking news from the literary world, well, that links Dublin and Oslo and John Banville and the Nobel Prize. This is an extraordinary story that you were tweeting about this morning. Oh, yes. It's a terrible thing. I don't know if anybody's seen it. That, um, on, uh, you probably know that two days ago uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature was announced. But somebody from the Swedish Academy or from the phone lines there phoned up John Banville and told him he'd won the Nobel Prize. And, um, and, he, and he hadn't. And um, you just wonder what kind of, what, what, would, what would make somebody do something so horrible, so and awful? The thing was it, it was a call that came from, from the building. From, from the building. Yes, the call was coming from inside the building. Um, so, um, and um, I was talking to him this morning and he said it had been a very grisly few days. But as I was saying to him, at the same time, there's only a handful of people in the world who could wake up on that morning with a legitimate chance yeah. of the phone ringing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's that. So I don't know if that was, I don't know. I don't know how, how far that went to help, you know. There's that or there's the million pounds. Like, yeah. You know, I suppose yeah. you would Maybe it'll come. So, he certainly, he certainly, he certainly deserves, deserves it. Deserves it yeah. He, I know, is a great friend of yours and, and a great supporter of, of yours. But you're wary, I think, of, of seeing yourself as being part of the world of the Irish novelist, aren't you? Uh, well, a little bit. It's, uh, I, I've always had this slight problem with it over the years in that like, I, I, do, I am an Irish writer and I'm proud to be an Irish writer. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's good being Irish. It's great being part of the EU. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. I thought we, I thought we had at least sorry. 10 minutes before sorry. we got to that. Sorry, sorry I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. Uh, <laughs> um, um, yes, so, but for most of my career, up until a few years ago, I, I hadn't written about Ireland at all. I'd usually written about other countries, other places. And I always felt that just because you're from a small country, doesn't mean that you have to write about that country. I always felt that, uh, even though like, geographically Britain isn't that much bigger, but Britain and the States, writers from those countries, kind of were given the freedom to write about anywhere they mm. wanted without being asked why. And then in more recent times, I, I've, um, I've probably not made myself very popular with this, but I do find, and maybe you find as readers as well, that the, the endless you know, quotes across jackets, um, where it's... Um, it's, it becomes very backslappy, mm. and it's become it's it's basically in the constitution in Ireland that uh, a writer cannot um, but praise another Irish writer's novel, <laughs> and if it, you, it's, it's not even just about praising it, you have to say basically it's the greatest masterpiece in the history of the universe, yeah. that that you know, nobody has written a better book than this debut, and I I I, I sort of like you know fight back against that a bit. I think it's. 
I don't think it's helpful to, to readers. I don't think it's helpful to writers. Uh, I think that level of hyperbole just gets exhausting. Mm. And it's untrue. Mm. You know, I don't see why we can't sometimes say, that's actually a very good book. And I'd be very interested to see what he or she writes next, rather than always praising everything with such extreme terms. Um, I mean, is it, is it, it is obviously partly the size of the country, but it's also something about Dublin, isn't it? I mean, you worked in, in Waterstones, I think, in, in, I in Dublin when you were in your, in your 20s, so you saw all of these new books by Irish writers coming in. But it, it is a city that, I suppose, there's one literary newspaper, the Irish Times, so a lot of the writers are going to be reviewing their peers' books for, well, for no, that Well, no, because I, re I review for the Irish Times, and the literary editor generally doesn't give the Irish to the Irish because it's impossible. Um, it's become impossible, to be, to be honest. Uh, I, I remember a couple of years ago, when we still were, uh, I had been given a, a book by an Irish writer to review, and it was, a, it, was a, a, it was a second novel, and by somebody whose first novel I had thought was quite good. And the book was so terrible, the second book. I mean, it was just so <laughs> bloody awful that I thought, I cannot write, the, you know, if I write an honest review of this, it's going to just take it down, and I, you know, I don't want to be that guy. So I, I said, look, I'd rather not review it. And, and then some months later, through a, through, um, through a series of uh, events, which in fact will link to this, and when we talk about this, um, this, this person who had wrote this book found out that I had given this book back. And for three, for the last, for about three years then, um, emails, tweets, abuse, constantly. Um, not because I had given him a bad review, uh, <laughs> but because I hadn't liked, I had the temerity not to like his book. Yeah. Okay, that cuts it down to one gender at least. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, I am intrigued. Now. You know, so it's a good. Dublin's a good place oh, for a literary says, feud. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. If you like that sort of thing, yeah. but I don't, and I don't really go to parties. I don't. Well, I'm not invited, so um, I don't really like book launches. I I don't like. Um, it's never really been my thing. Mm. You know, I'm not. I'm not really in, in into that and. And, and I guess because, and I, you know, there's nothing wrong with having an opinion on things, but you, you, sometimes you feel like, you, you know, in all forms of life now, it feels like you're not allowed to have an opinion. Mm. You know, if you are, you're, you're, the, you're the worst human being in the world. Mm. So the truth is you can't leave the house. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's... Well, you, I mean, you ran, you, you've run into this recently in, in, in My Brother's Name is, is Jessica, which fueled an almighty row it did. Uh, in Dublin. And, and you know... Well, hundreds Dublin, of angry but, tweets but, and well yeah. started in Dublin then went yeah. then went global um, and, and you wrote a, a very good piece in the in the Guardian defending uh, defending the the, the, the book um, that left you quite frustrated I think I mean the, the, the story here this is about uh, uh, someone's brother who changes gender is transgender is yeah. transgender and uh, all sorts of suggestions that that it should have been my sister's name is Jessica or indeed you shouldn't have written it because yeah, you I don't know. have I mean, the experience is, to write this is what you're dealing with these days it's um, before that book came out, yeah, for, for those of you who don't know it, it's, yes, it's a novel narrated by a 13-year-old boy whose um, elder sibling, who's 17, uh, begins the book as his brother Jason, and at the end of the first chapter announces that she's transgender, and so it's the story actually about the 13-year-old boy, how he copes with this over a summer. Um, but as the book came out, you know, the, a, a huge amount of people who hadn't read the book, and in fact made a virtue of the fact that they haven't read it, um, were criticizing it and saying, I haven't read it and I'll never read it because it's mm. terrible. Mm. You, know, and, uh, you know, and that kind of thing. And then you, know, you write something that you hope is going to be compassionate and thoughtful and that will help children dealing with this experience or who know people dealing with it. Um, and you are, you are presented, a narrative is created 
by people online, say, who just decide this is who you are. You are transphobic, or you're a racist, or you're anti-Semitic, or you're, 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 you're one of the ists. And it mm. doesn't matter, they don't care what you've written, they don't care what's in the book. They just want to, to tear you down. And it's, it's, it's very frustrating, it's very disappointing. Um, it's, it shows a complete lack of awareness of what books are supposed to be. You know, I was talking to kids here yesterday, and I'm giving them advice about writing. And I was saying to them, you know, the worst advice you can get is write about what you know. It's write about what you don't know and find out. You know, the, the writers are allowed to write anything they want to write about any place, time, character. The book can then turn out to be good, bad, or indifferent. Mm. And if the book turns out to be terrible, fine. You know, you can come up and say, I didn't like the book. The, the story was boring. The characters didn't make sense. The dialogue was, was nonsense. Um, but if you've read it, you can say that. Yeah. If you haven't read it... Just shut up. Yeah, you can't, and it's and it's, it's it's I, it does make me frustrated because it feels to me sometimes there's a lot of sort of halo shining going on, and it's it it doesn't matter, the truth doesn't matter at all, you know the, a, a cartoon character is created online and and you, with the same name as you, and then people just keep going at you and talking to you in a way that you would never speak and that, to that, a stranger. And that, that argument about, you know, you, can, uh, you can't write uh, about anyone you're not. I mean, take that to the extreme. You can't write about, you couldn't write about female characters. You couldn't write about straight characters. You couldn't write about English characters. I mean, it's Well, you couldn't write sci-fi. Yeah. Only criminals could write crime books. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's... <laughs> I mean, it's just, it would just all be autobiography, really, you know. And, and, and I should... And we know where that would lead. And just in, in point of fact, I had made the decision when I was writing that, that book for young people that the narrative voice was not going to be the transgender character. It was going to be the younger brother who didn't understand and was trying to understand, which effectively is the position that I'm in. You know, I'm trying to, I'm learning about it, you know, asking the questions that we're all asking when it comes to any issue like that. I, I, had I written it from the point of view of the transgender character, uh, which I'm perfectly entitled to do, I could almost understand I wouldn't really, but I would try <laughs> to understand um, the criticisms. But the 13-year-old boy, I've been a 13-year-old mm. boy. Mm. You know, I, I do know what that's about. Mm. Mm. Uh, we were both here but for... But I'm not bitter. <laughs> so, just... That much is clear. Uh, we, we were both here for, for David, David Nichols' session uh, earlier on this morning, and, and he was talking about coming to Twitter uh, uh, quite recently yeah. uh, and, and being very nice to everyone. I mean, you, you're, you're quite combative on Twitter, which makes you well, a great, I know, but great I'm an person idiot. to follow. But, I, but did, did, did you stay on it throughout that, or did you did you? No, I went off it for about yeah. a week or so, because it was, it, it was getting to the point where it was just it was too upsetting for yeah. all the joking about it. You know, when people are starting um, really abusing you and telling you... you you better not go out alone. Um, bad have, I, have I gone off? No. Um, when people, uh, yeah, and like, I got a couple of death threats. My, my sister, who works in a bookshop in Dublin, started getting um, abuse on, online because she has the same surname as me, and they could see I followed yeah. her, and she followed me. At that point, you just go, this is ridiculous. Yeah. It's a book. You know, it's, it's a novel. Like, what's wrong with you that you, you want to go online and scream at a stranger? I don't, I don't get it. But I do get compatible sometimes, and I shouldn't. And it's, it's um, you, like feeding it is, is ridiculous. And, but um, I don't know, I'm, I'm very stupid sometimes. <laughs> You've written two fantastic Irish set novels, The History of Loneliness and The Heart's Invisible Furies, um, both of which are very tied up with the change in Ireland, principally around the demise of the, the power mm -hmm. of, of the Catholic Church. Um, but also the, the liberal changes that that's, 
uh, uh, brought in. I mean, Ireland's gone from being uh, uh, a fairly illiberal place to being one of the most liberal countries mm -hmm. in, in Europe, and that, that continues to change. The, the gay marriage referendum, what, five years ago, three, four years uh, ago now? 2015. Yeah, every county in Ireland, bar County Leash, I think, wasn't it? Roscommon. Roscommon. Voted... Those bloody people in Roscommon. <laughs> Voted unanimously uh, in 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 favour. Uh, did that create a world that you felt you, you were now able to write about Ireland? I mean, did that? Uh, well, no. I mean, I wrote History of Loneliness before that happened. Um, the, I think I had got to a, a place in my life where I felt I wanted to write about my own country, and it was it was actually something that my father had told me a story, that ended up being the opening chapter of History of Loneliness, that led me into writing that, and. When I, st when I started writing it, it was like you know, a dam had opened up in my, my mm. brain and all these memories, all these stories came out. Where, uh, most of it is set around the years as well that I was growing up. And when I, where I grew up in Dublin, my neighbour on one side was the parish priest and on the other side was nine nuns. Um, <laughs> and I went to a, a, a Catholic school. I was taught by priests. I was an altar boy. Uh, so you know, I had that whole experience mm. growing up. And because I'd never really written anything personal before, uh, the, the, the decision or the choice to, to write something personal just allowed all these stories to come flowing out. And even though it's quite a dark book, uh, it was actually a very enjoyable book for mm. me to write because I, I was so lost inside it. I, l I loved writing it. And then when I got to the end of it, having done my best to destroy the Catholic Church, I decided <laughs> I, would, uh, I would then go on and just look at Irish society because I thought, you know, when I was in university, for example, when I was in Trinity, um, homosexuality was still illegal. And yet, 22 years later, we had become the first country in the world to vote by public vote um, to, to um, have equal rights marriage. 22 years is, is nothing in the blink of an eye, you know, in historical terms. So I wanted to ask myself, well, what happened? What happened in the country to, you know, what went wrong? You know, to... <laughs> Well, you know, how could a country change so much so quickly, particularly a country like Ireland, which had such a history of conservatism, of Catholicism, of misogyny, of all of that? Um, what happened to, to change it? And I think sometimes as a writer, you write the novel to discover the answer for yourself. Mm. And a lot of it, in, in, certainly in history of Leninist, of, of course, the evil of individual priests, which has been much reported, but actually what, what struck me in the book is, is the complicity of people around them, I mean, particularly Father Rodgen, the, the, yeah. the main character, but, but everybody just going along with it, even if they know something, something isn't right. Well, it's interesting you use that word because my, my alternate title as I was writing it was complicity. Really? Um, but, um, but I like the history of loneliness better. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the reality is a small minority of priests committed those criminal acts, but a vast majority knew about it. And not just the priests, but the parents, the guards, everybody, mm. society knew about it. And it was just, it was okay, you know? Mm. Um, parents would go to the local, uh, uh, local bishop and say, this priest has done this. And the bishop would say, right, well, we'll move that priest now from, you know, Wexford to Roscommon. <laughs> and, um, and rather than, you know, they, they felt that... Uh, uh, the what's what's the word uh, for law the law canon law that canon law superseded yeah. civil law and of course it doesn't and now you look back and you think that's cra I mean like how did people go along with it it's mm. crazy mm. Um, but it was it was the case at mm. the time so 
one of the things I wanted to do in that book was by, because the narrator of the book is himself not a criminal, has not committed any criminal acts, um, I wanted him at the start. I, I thought about him, imagined him as being somebody who gets to you know, a, a, an advanced age, he's like in his 70s or something, and looking back at his life and feeling that the church and his, his peers have let him down. But again, through the writing of it, what I found was he was the, the bad guy because we find out eventually he is complicit. He has seen it all, and he's always turned away. And, and that's just as bad. But I hadn't envisioned that at the start. Uh, because you know, I was I, I was here for David's talk, and he was saying that he he has to know everything about the characters and the story in advance. I know I never know anything about it. So it develops as you progress. Yeah, I I, I literally start and just see where it's going to take me. Um, so it was interesting to me then to to find that the person I thought was going to be uh, a complete innocent was, turns out to be somebody who's just been really complicit, which most Irish people were. Mm. And, and what about the, the Catholic Church now and its role in the culture? I mean, uh, it, when, when you come in from uh, 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 Dublin Airport, just as you hit the, the outskirts of the city, there's an enormous Catholic Church on the left. I think it's St. Kevin's Church in Stillauglan or somewhere. And it was built in the 1970s. It's a place that probably would have sat a 1,000 worshippers. Mm. And now someone was telling me there'll be 40 people taking mass there on a, on a Saturday night or on a, on a Sunday morning. I mean... It, apart from a lot, of, a lot of underused buildings. I mean, that stranglehold that the church had on literature, theater, television, morality, oh, yeah, it's, it's, personal it's, life. It's completely gone, yeah. it's completely gone. But I, I think also, to be fair and, and balanced on it, you know, priests today, younger priests today, these are not the priests of my growing up or my parents growing up. Um, firstly, you know, when I was growing up, of course, we had so many priests, there were so many Irish people who became priests, that they all had, you know, they went on what was called the missions. You know, they would go to Africa, or they'd go to South America. Now we're the missions. Mm. You know, most, uh, I would say a good, a good majority of priests, well maybe, a good half of them anyway, in Ireland are not Irish. Really? Um, I think last year there was something like three um, vocations in, in Ireland. In the past there would have been 3,000 yeah. a year. You know, I mean, every family wanted to have a priest. Every family wanted to have a teacher. Um, but, you know, a priest was an important thing to have in the family. Uh, and that's why, you know, so many of those young men who went in as teenagers into seminaries before their minds were open at all in any way, shape or form, uh, were thrust into an experience that they never asked for, that they, they didn't want, they didn't understand, and then woke up, you know, when they're 30, and their, their minds have been literally perverted by, mm. by this unnatural state of celibacy, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so it's completely different now. But there is, I mean, you still get a lot of schools that are run by priests, but it's, it is different. They're not the same people. They're, they're better people. Mm. I mean, even look at the church. I mean, I, from my opinion, for what it's worth, um, like Pope Francis is a very different person mm. than, than Benedict or John Paul II. At least he's trying to be, you know, there's still a long way to go. Do you still describe yourself as a Catholic? No, 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 not at all. But I never really would have because I, I, I don't believe I ever was just because somebody throws water on you when you're a few days old. You know, it doesn't, it, nobody else can define what you are. Even like I, I said, you know, I was an altar boy and all that. And I, was, I loved being an altar boy. It was the one, I felt really at home there, which I didn't feel in school. But it was never about religion. Mm. It was about, um, you know, friends and things. Uh, I don't think I was ever religious. I was never unreligious. I just never really cared. Mm. It just wasn't really, you would go to mass and you'd sit there and you'd, you'd, you'd Say the things. Yeah. But it just wasn't really in any way part of me. And, you know, it's something I walked away from in my teenage years. Um, uh, and, you know, and the experiences that I had had in school would have 
set me away from it anyway. But um, yeah, no, I wouldn't describe myself as Catholic at all. You were always very focused on, on being a, a writer. It's interesting you were working with teenagers yesterday because I read somewhere that, that you had a fantastic English teacher when you were 16 who, who gave you a list of, of books to read and that, that sort of opened the door. Okay, this is going to sound like I'm being facetious and I'm not. For many years I've been talking about, and in fact I mentioned them yesterday because of the fact that, yes, this English teacher gave me these, this wonderful list of books when I was 14, last day before um, summer holidays. Uh, books that I'd never read by authors I'd never heard of. And it really inspired me and made me a reader. And like, I'm not being facetious, but this same person is currently, as we speak, on trial in Dublin for um, multiple, I think, it's, I think we're up to about 50 different people um, for sexual abuse in the school I was in. Um, so, you know, including some of my friends. And um, it's, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking, you know? You, you know, I that? started, you know, when, when I published Striped Pajamas in 06 and I started going into schools and I'd never gone into schools and, um, and suddenly I was, you know, spending years going into schools with different kids books. And I always told that story, always. Mm. You know, it, you, you sort of develop, a, you know, if you've put in front of 50 children or something for an hour and told to do something, you know, you develop a pattern, you develop a speech that you do. And I, you know, I always told this thing about this last day of summer holidays and this list of books and, and how that had helped me and, and so on. And then the story has an epilogue like that. Mm. So. Mm. That is quite a thought. Um, you, you, you were determined that you were going to get a book published by the time you were 30? Yes. And you, you did it a year early? 29. Yeah. 29 <laughs> and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled it in just under the wire. Yeah. First four books come out, but then you write one that somehow attracts interest around the world, really. Yes. Seven million copies, is it? That's um, I believe it's 11. <laughs> uh, um, I think the article I was reading was two years ago, so that shows how fast these things... But you know, you know what's funny is that, and I've been thinking about this recently in relation this to... This is the boy in striped pyjamas. I've been thinking about this recently in relation to what we were saying earlier about my brother's name is Jessica. I don't think I would be able to write... I don't think I'd be allowed to write that book today. Or if I did write it, you know, I think it would have the same response as Jessica had. I think people would say, you can't write that. Um, you weren't there, you know, you don't know about it. The, the wokesters would be on me. And I, I, I honestly think you couldn't get away with writing that book today. I don't think, you know, Marcus Zusak could get away with writing the book deep today. Um, and, and it's terrible, it's a shame. Mm. But yes, it, it, was, it was an amazing experience and it changed my life completely. Um, and I guess every writer wants one of those books that suddenly comes along and just changes things for you and suddenly you've got readers which mm. is what you wanted you know it's it's not about you know money or anything like that it's it's about readers you're again what I always say to kids is reading writing is not about throwing it in a drawer afterwards it's it's for sharing you want somebody to read these words and and hopefully if you've done it right to be moved by them to you know to cry or to laugh or to be scared whatever the the appropriate emotion is um, so I was very fortunate that I had that idea and that I was in the space to kind of write that idea and it, and it came out. And when you hit that level of sales, you're going to get on a train or a plane and see someone sitting there reading it, aren't you? I mean, how, how, does, that, how does that feel? It's always a very weird moment when you see that. And um, I, I was once on a plane about a year after it came out, I was on a plane going to Amsterdam and there was a lady beside me reading Boy in the Striped Pajamas and she was in the last 10 pages. So I knew she was coming up to like the big dramatic moment. And I could see she was going, 
<laughs> and then she got to the end and closed it, and she sort of sat there for a moment. And she, you know, put in the, the little rack in front of the seat, and, and I just turned to her and said, "Just out of interest, you know, is that any good?" And she went, uh, she went, yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. so you don't ask anymore. <laughs> so, these things happen. <laughs> Let's talk about Ladder to the Sky, which uh, is brilliantly funny, brilliantly dark, uh, kind of feels very realistic in, in many ways. Uh, and, and as you were hinting at earlier on, there are elements of, of, of reality that, that inspire the telling of the tale. The, the story of Morris Swift, uh, who is a writer but has one major flaw, he can't think of an original idea, so he, he steals them with disastrous consequences. Eric Ackerman, Dash Hardy, his wife Edith, his son Daniel, uh, all fall victim to his greed. Uh, Theo Field, who might fall victim, but turns out not to, and we're not giving the end away by saying that, I don't think, is, is the, the, the sort of interesting figure in the, the third section. It's three, three sort of three books sections, with interludes yeah. that come between. Um, in a way, writing a book about the book world is, is quite high risk, isn't it? Well, publishers don't like them. Mm. Um, they think people don't want to read about writers. Uh, but I, you know, I've been publishing for 20 years and I felt I've never written about writers before and I wanted one kind of writer's book um, about, you know, like anybody, you, you know, you've all held jobs, I'm sure, all your lives and you know your own industry, you know it and you know the stories and you've seen so much along the way. And that's what I felt. I felt, you know, I've got a bunch of good stories and things that I've seen and all the little dramas that happen. And, you know, it could be quite fun to write about and also to figure out my own relationship after 20 years with the writing world. So how many real-life incidents are there in there? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, it begins from a very, from a real life, because the first third of the book is narrated by um, a, a writer called Eric Ackerman, who is much older than I am. He's, he's well into his 70s, um, uh, but has had this extraordinary success. And is traveling through Europe. He's won uh, the prize. He's won the prize. Which is presumably the book, but basically. Yeah. And uh, he's traveling through Europe with this uh, young guy who's an aspiring writer um, who has kind of latched onto him and he's taken him he's on very as handsome. PA. Yeah, he's handsome and he's charming and witty. And, you know, the opening scene of the book is this young man basically attaching himself to Eric. And so it's then 100 pages of what happens in their relationship. And that all came from an experience in my own life where I, I wasn't the Morris, I was the Eric. And um, I had a friendship with some, uh, maybe a sociopath would be too far to go, but somebody who, who was, uh, who, you know, for a good few years, we were very, 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 very close friends. And, um, and it kind of went wrong. And I, I kind of got to the point where I realized, um, at least my view of it, was that uh, he was using me very much to, you know, to get published, to meet agents, meet editors, and, you know, get grants, all this sort of stuff. Uh, and at, but at the end of that um, relationship, what I felt was, firstly, I was annoyed with him, but I was also annoyed with myself. I was thought, what was wrong with me that somebody who, like, in theory, you know, I've got a good career, things are going fine. Why do I need somebody to flatter me and charm me? Why am I so susceptible to that? So it's not just about him, it's also about Eric. Like, they're both, they're both using each other mm. in, in the novel. But a lot of the stories I use, you know, the, certainly in the second section, when it gets to when Morris is actually successful, 
And it's things like, you know, around, say, festivals. And there's always, for example, you know, there's only two of us on the stage here, but if there was, say, two writers and you were interviewing us, there's always that moment in the green room, say, where, where somebody has to say, well, who's reading first? <laughs> you know, and it's always that awkwardness. It's like and billing on a film poster, isn't it? Sorry? It's like the billing on a film well, poster. Well, yeah. yeah, and I always, like, you know, at a moment like that, the two people know, you, you always know whether you're the junior or the senior in the, on the stage that day. And sometimes you're one and sometimes mm. you're the other. And, you know, manners dictates that the person who is the junior will say, oh, I'll read first, you know, just to, so there's no awkwardness. But, you know, those kind of things. And uh, so I use that a bit. I use, um, um, there's a story I use in it about, uh, th this is a true story, a writer, I know who, um, he, he has 20-20 vision. There's nothing wrong with his eyes. But when he does a, an event, when he reads, he, he, uh, he picks up glasses and uses them to read from the book. And the glasses are fake. There's just <laughs> glass in them. And I know it because I picked those up and I look, I'd heard this and I picked them up and he wasn't looking. And I looked through them and they're fake. <laughs> now these are not fake, but and, and I'm not sure I we're think, gonna believe you now. Well, no, they really aren't. Um, but, and it, it makes, yeah, go on, have a look. Yeah, go on. But they're real, I can verify. <laughs> um, and but it, and it's, it's one of those, you say to yourself, why do you, what's wrong with yeah. you? you why know, this affectation? Like, you're doing yeah. fine. You're, you're, your books are published. You must be doing, you're at a festival. You're, you're clearly doing okay. Why do you need to impress people? Or why do you think it's impressive to put on your glasses that are fake glasses to read? <laughs> It doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, and, but again, anybody who's been doing anything for 20 years will, will come across so many little funny things like that. And um, I suppose it's not doing anybody any harm, but you know. There's something very pleasing bad. in the book about the way that we as the readers are, are kind of complicit in what's, in what's happening. You kind of, we as the reader realize that the victim is being set up way before the victim uh, realizes. Oh, the victim yeah. never really realizes until the very end, do they? But I think it's what I tried for, you know, one of my favorite uh, novels or sequence of novels is the, the Ripley novels, Towns of Mr. Ripley, Patricia Highsmith. And I love those books. And I love the idea, always love the idea of the, kind of the villain that you root for, the kind of Tom Ripley or Hannibal Lecter, J.R. Ewing, something like that. You know, you don't want them to get caught, really. You know, you want Hannibal Lecter to eat as many people as <laughs> he possibly can. You know, it's when, you know, you get the book where Hannibal Lecter goes vegan. That's when you say, no, I'm, I'm done with this. Um, so I wanted Morris to be charming and awful, but that the reader would kind of go, well, how, how much worse can he get and will he get hot? Mm. Um, so, you know, I had kind of good fun with that. And, and it is very much based on the kind of Tom Ripley uh, idea. Because the first, the first victim, Eric, well, you know, maybe... But Eric is a victim of his own misfortune. Yeah, and maybe, no. maybe, maybe it's immoral, but actually maybe it's just a young writer taking someone's story and, and running with it. Later comes an incident of straightforward plagiarism. Now, that's, that's mm. very contemporary in the publishing world, isn't it, at the moment? This idea of, of, of people lifting things and taking things, which, of course, now is, is much easier to find out because, as people have done, they put it into Google and search and mysteriously it comes up and proves that an article has already appeared or a piece has already appeared somewhere else. But it, it's very interesting about when, when something's plagiarism and when it's simply an idea being reinvented or taken on. Well, yeah, I mean, you can, if you, I guess if you acknowledge your, your, source, your source in some way... Um, uh, you know, it's, it's the difference between somebody telling you a story and you using that story and them knowing that you're a writer and, um, and you finding something in somebody else's book 
and stealing it. But if you do, I mean, but sometimes you can use some, you, sometimes you can just say, well, I wasn't stealing, it was a homage. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I'll give you an example of that, which, which I did, and I think it's fair enough. And it goes back to the um, My Brother's Name is Jessica book. Again, another of my favorite books is My Cousin Rachel by Daphne du Maurier. I'm sure many of you read it. Oh, Cornwall, right? On um, her territory. Um, and I'm sure anybody who's read that will remember that all the way through that book, um, Ambrose, isn't it? Uh, every time he refers to Rachel, he refers to her as my cousin Rachel. My cousin Rachel walked into the room. As I sat there, my cousin Rachel poured a cup of tea. And he only stops the moment he falls in love with her. And then she becomes Rachel. And it's a brilliant device. And in My Brother's Name is Jessica, I, did, I, used, I, I, I stole that, but as that Sam, the narrator, would constantly refer to his brother as my brother Jason. And it would only be at the moment where he finally comes to accept that Jason is now Jessica and that it's fine, and it's the same per she's the same person she always was, that he can say Jessica rather than my brother Jay. He's adamant about it. But every time I've talked about the book, I always talk about Daphne de Maria mm. with it. So I feel like on one hand, you know, I've used her clever idea, but I, I am acknowledging that, I'm, that I've used it, and she's dead anyway and can't sue me. <laughs> so. There are, um, there are uh, obviously some hidden real people in this book, but there are yes. actually two real people, uh, Gore Vidal and, uh, and Howard Austin, his, his yeah. long-term partner. And a, a, a brilliant interlude that, that takes place in, in Ravenna in Italy at, uh, at Gore Vidal's house. Uh, you're going to read a bit of it, but, yeah. but just... just my <laughs> put the real glasses on. Oh, I can't see anybody there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this takes place when um, Morris has just got his book published, and he's gone, uh, he has a new sort of like mentor who is, um, he's kind of latched onto an American writer called Dash Hardy, a fictional writer. Um, but they've been invited to Gore Vidal's house on the Amalfi for a night. And, um, and Morris is basically hoping to seduce Gore in every possible sense. And this is what happens. Over dinner, the discussion turned to Morris's novel. Gore had avoided making any direct reference to it all afternoon, but Howard, who had returned home in disarray, having had his wallet stolen in a cafe, asked when it would be published. Oh, but it's already out, said Dash, delighted that the conversation was turning to his protege at last, which was far more appealing to him than the lecture on the Emperor Galba that Gore had been delivering for 40 minutes. The British edition, that is, and some of the European ones. But the Americans don't publish until September. That's where you come in, Gore. Me, asked Gore, lifting a prawn from his plate and shelling it in a trio of expert movements. What have I got to do with anything? We thought you might offer an endorsement. You don't mind our asking, do you? We being Morris and I. Dash, please, said Morris, doing his best to look uncomfortable, but proving himself an imperfect actor. Is that what you hoped for, Morris? Asked Gore, turning to the boy and looking him directly in the eye. Did you hope that I might endorse your novel? Actually, I'd prefer if you didn't, he replied. Really, said Gore, may I ask why? Because I wouldn't want you to think that's the only reason I came here tonight. When Dash suggested you might host us for dinner, I knew I would cancel anything on my calendar in order to attend. I've been an admirer of yours for many years, and the opportunity to meet you in person was one that was too good to pass up. But I wouldn't want you to think I came here only to exploit your good nature. Gore couldn't help but laugh at the suggestion. Many outrageous things had been said about him over the years, thousands of unkind comments, but no one had ever had the bad manners to accuse him of having a good nature. <laughs> he glanced towards Howard, who was smiling too as he poured more wine. So how about I say that even if you were to offer an endorsement, continued Morris, I would reject it. If your editor could hear you now, he'd put a gag across your mouth. 
Of course, should you find the time to read my novel, I'd be very interested to know what you make of it, in a private capacity, of course, man to man. Gore sipped his drink and for once felt stuck for words. Exactly what game was the boy playing? It was difficult to decipher. Was he serious when he said that he would turn down a quote from him if one was offered? And if so, was that an insult or a compliment? Perhaps he thought his name no longer held enough weight to warrant a sentence or two across the dust jacket of a debut novel. If that was the case, then it might be time to leave Italy and return to public life. Or did the boy not want the patronage of a man Gore's age, preferring the support of younger, more fashionable writers? A weight of sorrow fell upon him, and as he reached for another prawn, he changed his mind and dropped it back in the bowl with its fellows, his appetite destroyed. <laughs> Okay. That's a, th that line about uh, Gore and Morris man to man, I mean, it perfectly sums up Morris's arrogance, doesn't it, and yeah. determination. At, at this yeah, but he's, like, uh, he's taken on the wrong guy. Yeah. You know, that's all through the book, basically, Morris is so charming and handsome and wonderful that everybody falls for him. But Gore Vidal's been there, yeah. you know, for 60-odd years of this, and he's nobody's fool, and he's, no he's known everybody, he's met everybody, and no one is going to take him for an idiot. And so I think, you know, I, I worked so hard on that particular section just to try to get Gore's voice right and, um, you know, to, to how he would feel at, at every sentence that was said uh, and, and how long it would take him before he would say, you know what, nah, yeah, you, out, well, you know, um, I'm not having it. I'm, I'm, I'm too old and too wise for this. And how did the idea of Gore Vidal come in? I mean, is he a, a, I, I a wanted, writer you've always been a... I wanted one real writer. I wanted one person who would see through Morris, and he was just the obvious person. I've always been a massive Gore Vidal fan. I've read so much of his work. Um, I lo always loved watching him on documentaries. He was so clever and witty and sharp in his dealings with people on, 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 on TV chat shows or whatever. And um, he just seemed to me the obvious person, you know, mm. somebody who, uh, and, and of course, because Morris plays on sexuality so much, uh, Morris is, as I say, he's, he's so gorgeous, but he's, he's not interested in sex, Morris. He's not gay, he's not straight, he's not bi, he's just basically, he doesn't care, he's not particularly interested. Um, a lot of people in his position would use his looks and his success to, you know, to, to, to have romantic escapades. He's just, he's absolutely not interested in that at all. But he knows. And that's an interesting thing that runs throughout the book, doesn't it? I mean, you keep coming back to that. And, well, it means and later on you explore his childhood, for example, as a teenager, when he, when he just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't there. Yeah, so and, and it's, I mean, it happens. You know, that there, are, there are people that are just kind of asexual. And just because he's so handsome doesn't mean that he has to be constantly, you know, upright, um, so to speak. Um, but, uh, is it going on that? Oh, yes, with Gore Vidal. Um, <laughs> with Gore Vidal. It just seemed to me that, that because he's using his sexuality so much through the book, that uh, Gore Vidal, I think, is so, you know, you look at Gore when he was a young man, oh my God, he was like a mm. vision, you know, and clearly probably used his looks Absolutely, and, yeah. and his talent. But, you know, he, he, he used his, his looks to, to get ahead as well. Um, so it just seemed like the right person. But I also thought that writing Gore Vidal is a bit like writing Oscar Wilde. You know, you have to really up your game. Every sentence has to be Absolutely convincing. Him, yeah. yeah, otherwise it's, you, you can't have somebody that clever and make it flat. Yeah, yeah. The second uh, 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 main section is, is set in, in Norwich, uh, and, and the, uh, 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 Morris's uh, uh, wife, Edith, is, is teaching creative writing, presumably 
UEA. It is UEA. Which it is UEA. Yeah. UEA but, uh, and, uh, that's which is where I was. Well, a, I was both a student there and have taught there over the years. And you have a, a bursary, I think. I, I do. For, I, for I, fund, I do a scholarship for Irish students. There. Yeah. I mean, that was when UEA first came through as the place, first place really that taught creative writing. A lot of a lot of novelists were kind of quite sniffy about this, weren't they? The idea of formal courses for well, teaching creative. Now, now it seems now it seems to be part of the mainstream. Well, sometimes sometimes novelists still are, and yet. We would never criticise somebody for going to film school or to art or school. Or music, you know, you know, the Royal College of Music. Yeah. The, the, the misunderstanding about creative writing courses is that they teach you something, teach you how to write or teach you how to write in a specific style. They don't. That's not what they're there for. Uh, they're there to, like, for example, when I was a student, there was 12 of us and all aspiring writers, all aspiring novelists, in a place for a year where you're writing all the time, you're giving work into class, you're sitting around for hours at a time discussing it, you're learning as much from reading other people's work and learning to talk about it as you are from them reading yours. So it's, a, it's about honing it. It's about having readers you know, and people talking to you about it. And of course, established, successful writers. I had Malcolm Bradbury teaching me when I was there. So you know, it was like a great person to mm. read my book as a, or my stories as a 22-year-old. Mm. Um, and nobody goes into one of those courses and comes out a worse writer. You know, they don't necessarily come out being able to you know, make a career out of it. But you'll never come out worse. So there is a snobbery sometimes. And occasionally, you'll meet a writer who will be very sniffy about it and stuff. And as, but what, what they're generally saying is, oh, you know, I have natural talent, and I didn't need it. Well, I did need it. Mm. And so many other people needed it. Up until you know, the new Nobel Prize was announced, the, the current Nobel laureate was Kazuo Ishiguro, mm. who did the UEA writing mm. course. Ian McEwan did it. Mm. Anne Enright did it, all Booker Prize winners. Mm. So, you know, I, I don't think I don't think there's anything to be sniffy about. And interestingly, out of your class of twelve, how many have have made it? For want of a better expression, there are as, as four writers. that are ongoing writers. There's Toby Litt, uh, Richard Beard, and Jeanette Jenkins. Yeah, yeah, no, very interesting. Let's open the floor up for for for, for questions, uh, specifically about Ladder to the Sky or about uh, other books that uh, that John has written a, a or. Mic. Uh, or about the, the Catholic Church in Ireland, or oh, no, anything else you might want to, to ask. Well, yeah, gentleman in the blue shirt. Hello, John. Hello. Um, I'm Ashley Hansen. I've just done a painting responding to your Boy in the Stripe pyjamas. Oh, right, OK. Uh, I saw the ones for Lavish to the Sky. Next in door, yeah. yeah. And the first thing I want to say is that I wouldn't have done that painting without going to art college. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> OK. Back in the day. That's a good point. Um, painting, painting from the novel is, is my thing, and, and it's bloody difficult. <laughs> As you can imagine, and and um, and of course, you know, words provoke images. And what's interesting is that everybody's image is different from everybody else's, including the author's. And in turn, of course, you know, paintings can inspire words. And I was asking, I was about to ask whether you would perhaps find time to respond to my painting, my piece of art, about your piece of art. Sure, and we can just go back and forth the rest of our lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think yeah, no, I'd really like to see it, actually. I, I really probably won't do a painting about your response to mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'd really like to see it. Um, Fantastic. For sure. So I'd just like to say that um, Paul Auster um, said some very complimentary remarks about a series I made about his City of Glass paintings. So uh, I thought you were going to say to me complimentary But I'll take the risk. <laughs> I'll take the risk. Okay. So whatever you say. Well, I look, is it on the wall of the, the, in the it, thing? It in there? Is, okay, yeah. great. I'll have Thank you, John. Thank, Thank you very much indeed for that. Now, um, question about John's work, perhaps. Yes, just there. 
Hello, um, I'm a great fan of your last two books. Thank you. And um, I just wondered what was so different about those two than your earlier work. They just seemed to stand out so much more. Um, uh, they were incredible. Well, thank you. Um, I guess, you know, just getting older and getting more experienced as a writer and challenging myself more. I guess when I was younger, I relied a lot on existing stories like The Bounty, like Dr. Crippen. Um, like Buffalo Bill, you know, um, and I kind of fictionalized those, and I, which I don't know, but maybe maybe there was a lack of confidence in myself about my own imagination, and I, I've I've stepped away from that a lot now, and I, I I really just kind of make them up, and and I enjoy doing that. But I guess every writer just changes as their life goes on, and different things happen to them in life, and you get hopefully you get better at what you're doing. But thank you. It's nice to know that the. It would be worse if you said I liked your first two, but since then, no. <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I sense you get a lot of pleasure from the research. I mean, whether it was the historical novels or whether it's, it's getting the facts about Gore Vidal right, for example, it's, it's something Well, I get a lot enjoy. of pleasure from the, just the whole act of writing. I'm, I'm not one of those writers who, who says it's a chore and I hate mm. doing it and I wish I didn't have to. Um, I, I really enjoy the craft of it. I, I love being just, you know, in front of my laptop or with the pages and, you know, chipping away at them, finding the story. It, it, it gives me a sense of self. It, mm. Without that, I, I'm, I get very kind of like just antsy. So I, I, I love writing, you know. And are you very, I mean, David was talking about how he puts on the, the well-tempered clavier by Bach. And, and no, I, I, do, you, do you have a, a, a pattern for writing or time for I don't writing? really like music being on, but I, I like being at home in Dublin for a first draft. But after that, I can take it on the road with me, and I can sit like in the you know the corner of a bar or a cafe or a hotel room or a plane, and I, I seem to be able to just block everything out, and and focus on, on, on what I'm doing, and and I quite enjoy doing that actually. It's uh, you know because I travel so much, it's it's quite nice not to, you know I don't go back to a hotel room and sort of look, switch on the TV or something. I, I I like being lost in the in the words. So. so have you got a laptop with you with something I have going it, at um, the moment? Right there at the back. With, the next novel on it. Great. So. Excellent. Um, do you want to say anything about that? Or, or? Oh, well, in a nutshell, yeah, because it's going to come out next July, and it's never too early to promote something. <laughs> so um, it's, 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 a, it's a strange one for me, because it starts in the year one in Palestine on the night that King Herod sends the soldiers out to kill the babies, and it ends in the year 2080 on a space station. Wow. And it moves through 52 countries every 40 years. Um, and the story moves not through characters, but through emotion. The idea behind the book is that as the world has changed over the centuries, as technology changes, as industry changes, as, as, as all, uh, everything around us changes, the one thing that doesn't change is human emotion. And that doesn't matter when or where. So, like, for example, if you fall in love today in Cornwall in 2019, your experience of falling in love will be the same as somebody falling in love in the year 500 in Turkey. If you like, are grieving, if you lose a parent in the 1600s in Holland, it's the same as somebody losing a parent in the 300s in you know, China, that emotions never change at all. So I'm, I'm trying to, rather than have a central character um, running through the novel, I've got this central emotions running through that keep getting picked up from country to country to country. And um, yeah, that's it. So. <laughs> And, and writing about the future, I mean, uh, it's... Well, it's only the last chapter takes yeah. place in the future. Right. Um, you know, because the, the penultimate chapter is like 2000 to 2040, and that chapter is the USA chapter, and it takes place on the night that Donald Trump got elected. 
and then the next, the final one is 2080. And he's when still we're on the present. Space station. <laughs> well, you know, actually, you know, it's not going to give a spoiler because it's kind of funny. You know, actually, no. What I do is um, in the uh, the last bit we see about Donald Trump is he's uh, he's making a speech, and as he's talking, a flame comes out of his finger. And he's like, oh, what's that? You know, punches down. And then he keeps talking and telling more lies. And then his whole arm burns into flames. And they, they, they pull it out with, with coats. And then he keeps talking and lying, and eventually he just spontaneously combusts. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Britain is still negotiating a treaty it's, with yeah, the European. It's, it's 2080. Yeah. We're living, all living on a space station, yeah. and Britain's still trying to leave the EU. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, any other questions? Yes. Uh, well, one, one from Patrick, and then we'll go over there next. Mr. John, I gather both your Irish novels are being developed for the screen. Are you tempted to write, are you indeed writing the screenplays? Um, they, they are, and this one is as well, but I'm, I'm not writing the screenplays. I've, I've, I have tried in the past. I wrote an adaptation of my third novel, Crippen, and I gave it to my film agent, and he read it, and the first thing he said to me was, have you ever actually seen a film? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm not, but what I am doing is I've, I've started, I've, I said I would never write one, but I recently started writing like a four-part TV thing. And um, I, I, I was asked to do it by somebody and who said, you, you know, who liked my work and said, would you do this? And I was kind of flattered. And I thought, I'll give it a try, you know, and see. But it's an original thing. Um, like I was saying last night that I, if I was having to adapt something, I don't think I could adapt my own. I think I'd find it easier to adapt somebody else's book than my own because because of the pain of throwing away. Well, no, so no, much no, not of because of that, but because I've created the the story and the format that I wanted it mm. to create it in, you know? And I would find it hard to go back to something and do that. I mean, uh, it, I, I personally think I would find that difficult. I think I would find it a little easier to maybe adapt, um, you know, a, a, another person's novel or a classic novel. But I'm giving it a try on this TV thing. I don't know if it's going to be any good. What was the subject? Well, I'll keep it to myself for okay. a minute, but it's... Um, it, but it, it, it's... Because it does seem to me we haven't had that much about the changes in Ireland. I mean, going back to... It's not about saying. Ireland. Um, it's not about Ireland. It's um, okay. Well, that's taken it, <laughs> taken it down a bit. There was a hand up there. Yes. Thank you. Um, you you said that you did your first draft in Ireland at home. Is that is that right? Generally, that yeah, right? yeah. That's fine. Because obviously you're feel comfortable with that and then you said you well well also if i've got like you know say a couple of months on the calendar free and you can be at home and you can focus on it every day um so then you go off um, with your draft and you're going to obviously edit it and redraft it how how many drafts do you normally have it usually comes out i think around sort of 10 to 12 maybe 10 to 12 something yeah. like that give or take yeah sometimes less sometimes more it depends because my, my son did uh, creative writing uh with the ou and he was he was doing about ten or twelve. Yeah. I think there's drafts. a moment where you just instinctively know I can't see it anymore. Now I need mm. to show it to my, my editor mm. and I need somebody to like look at this and tell me what I'm missing. You know, and uh, and that's I, I enjoy that process. I like work I've worked with my editor a long time. And that so relationship we, I imagine it's, is it's a, crucial. Is a, is it's really crucial important. Yeah. And um, and if you've got a great relationship with your editor, then you know, there's no hard feelings. You know, he can say to me, you know, this, this, and this, mm. terrible. You know, and I go, yeah, no. I often find that he will say something to me that I've n I know myself, but I've been too lazy to fix. Mm. And I kind of need, need somebody to say to me, you know, that scene isn't working. And, and they go, yeah, I know. Okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. You know, and, um, but I, I enjoy that process. Mm. I, I, I like the collaboration of it. You know, you're working so much on your own. 
with this. I mean, one thing I would like about writing a TV thing or a movie or something is, like when, I, when we did Striped Pajamas, it was, it was lovely to be with other people, you know, mm -hmm. to be in collaboration rather than um, always being sort of on your own. Mm. And having immediate feedback. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because another, that's, another that's the bit that I think most writers find quite difficult is the editing, isn't it? Um, it's not, not always very enjoyable. Mm. <laughs> I imagine not. Now, we've got, if you could we'll come forward. And we'll, we'll do the one at the back first, then we'll come to you. Yeah. Quick question, John. Are there any subject matter, any subjects that are completely off limits for you? Transgender. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. Like, I often say, like, like I don't read sci-fi, for example. I'm not really interested in sci-fi. But if I had a great idea, why not? You know, so a good idea is a good idea, regardless of what, is, what it is. Thank you. And, yeah. Um, I had the privilege of being in your session yesterday. And just so you kind of get your faith back in social media, my daughter was on social media this morning, and a lot of those students went away saying you're inspirational. So there is some... Some sanity out there. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> but I just wondered if you could tell this audience what you said to the students yesterday, which is about, well, one thing in relation to your editor and Boy in the Striped Pajamas, but also about how your, that came to you. Uh, about how the idea for Boy in the Striped Pajamas yes. came to me? Oh, um, well, I had, been, I, I had been reading widely since I was a teenager from that list of books that we mentioned, um, starting there uh, on the Holocaust. I'd started with Prima Levi and gone on to Elie Wiesel and Anne Frank, and uh, you know, through my Waterstones years, every time there was a, a new non-fiction book, a history book, an, an autobiography, an, a, a biography, it was a subject I always went back to. It was just something I was very, very interested in and wanting to understand better. Not as a writer, not thinking I'm doing this as research, I'm going to write a novel one day on this, um, more as just, you know, we all are interested in something, and I was just fascinated. Um, and so then I think all of that reading over those years came together in one moment where I just had this idea of the two boys sitting at a fence talking to each other. And I had that idea on a Tuesday night, and I, I started writing the first draft on a Wednesday morning. And I wrote, because I was, it, the story was coming out of me like really quickly, and um, it seemed to be working. Uh, I felt if I walked away from it, I was going to lose it completely. So I wrote all the way through Wednesday, all the way through Wednesday night, all the way through Thursday, all the way through Thursday night, and then on Friday at lunchtime, I finished the book. And it was a, a, mam a mammoth 60-hour first draft. And I had a full head of hair at the start of it. And it, was, it, was, it was all gone. And, um, but it was, just, I, it was just one of those moments that mm. can happen to a person in life where you say, you know, this, something has happened. In fact, because what I can remember of those few days was between chapters, say, you know, as I would like, have a cup of tea or something, saying to myself, don't think about this. You know, don't analyze it. Mm. Just have your cup of tea and then chapter 12, you know. And, um, and everything in my life changed from those couple of days. And I finished it on my birthday. And, and how, how much was that, how much did that change in the, in the process? Um, it, it changed a bit. There was, I, I had, originally when I brought it to my, my editor, uh, I had this sort of silly narration device where there was kind of a narrator who had heard this story and hadn't heard all the parts of it, so was, was telling the reader about it. And my editor was like, look, you don't need the gimmicks. Mm. The story you're telling, is a simple story and it works. Mm. Get rid of all the, you know, the, the fat around it and just tell your story. Mm. And it always stayed to me, and I always kind of think that since, like, no gimmicks, you know, just, uh, you know, sometimes you see, you know, when I open a book, and I hope nobody here has written a book that has done this, because I don't want to insult anybody, but sometimes, you know, you open a book and you see, like, funny fonts, or you see, you know, backwards writing or yeah. something like that, and you think, well, 
what does it mean? What does it actually, does mm. it mean anything or is it just a gimmick? And, mm. you know, it's really just the words that matter, the story mm. that matters and the, the characters. And um, anyway, that's a long answer to a short question. Well, uh, how amazing that you wrote that book in 60 hours. That is, uh, that is quite, a, quite a fact with which to, to finish. Uh, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. Thank you, John. John, thank we you. are going to whisk out, not through the zipped emergency exit, because I don't think we'd ever get out through that, but if we can let him get out that way so he can be ready to sign this book, which if you haven't read, I would really urge you to, because it is fantastic, brilliantly funny, and very good on the world of publishing, and Gore Vidal. John Boyne, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.